Learn to launch web-based products without coding. Join us as we discover the best tech stacks and the marketing strategies which actually work for founders. Before we meet our guest, here is a quick word from our sponsor. Discover why no-code is quickly becoming a requirement in this digital-first world and how you can take advantage of the emerging no-code economy at thenocodeeconomy.com. Hey, everybody. This is Natalie Furness, and we are here today at the Launch No-Code podcast. I have with me today Ben Tussle, who is the founder of Makeupad. Um, and we it's a pleasure to have you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So I've been following you for quite a while now because you're just one of those names that kind of everyone knows in the no-code space. But for me, what I'm interested in is what did the no-code space actually look like when you joined? It wasn't, it just, it wasn't a thing. I didn't even know I was joining anything. I was just building something because I couldn't code in a way that I figured out that you could string things together. So it was never called the no code movement or anything like that. And every time I would tweet something about, oh, I built this thing without code. It was never quite like with hashtag no code or anything like that. So it was just a bit different then. I think people started paying attention tools were getting better. There was funding for bigger tools like Webflow and things like that that were coming out. And it just, it all became like this marketing term, I guess, that was catchier, quicker to say, and it sort of helped people find the identity of, oh yeah, I'm sort of that person too. I'm a builder or want to be builder, but I also can't, I'm not technical. So I'm in this like no code world, which yeah, it sort of just happened. I don't know. Some people can blame me for <laughs> coining no-code terms, but I don't actually know where where or when that started. We should probably look, probably do some sort of Twitter search to find out where that came in. Yeah. So in terms of the background and the kind of tools that you started out with, you know, what did those look like? So I'm kind of with you in this whole like, doing no code before no code was a thing. Cause I mean, I've been using tools like HubSpot and automation and all those kind of things to build, like to put together random landing pages, but talk me through like, what did the tools look like to you then? What were you using to build? Yeah, I think one of my first things that I built was like a, a directory site for Alexa skills. So when like Alexa was coming out for the first time and all these new skills were coming out, I think I built something that was a card site. It was a simple one-page site that I made feel like it had multiple pages. And then there must have been some sort of like type form to submit stuff. And then Zapier that connected it back to something that I would then manually add to the site again. Um, and I think this is where like the jump of what no code is now and what like we said before we were doing things without code previously but it wasn't really this whole no code movement i don't know whether it's like the web app jump there's like oh there's things you can build now where people can log in and do stuff or have a membership site and like submit things or upvote stuff i think there's something maybe there that is where 
like no code came in rather than just being, oh yeah, I can build a website in Squarespace, which wasn't previously sort of called no code, which I think, I mean, it definitely sits in the same, same space. So it should be really. So I suppose I have a question off the back of that then. Do you think maybe this term no-co came about so it could become an investable market? I don't think so. I think it's just like when lots of people start talking about a thing, it becomes like a trendy thing and it's something to search. Like what do you, I don't know what we would type in Google if we were going to find stuff around this space, if it wasn't called something. Like, yeah, I just don't know what you type in. Um, and I don't think, I don't think it's a market. I don't think it's like VR, AR or like anything like that. I think it's just a, sh a sh infrastructure shift for software development. I just think it's like, it's opened up another pool of the scale, I think. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a market, but it feels that way because people are talking about it in its like form of, the no code space and things like that. So sometimes it's easier to identify that way. But So what did you do? So when you were searching when no code wasn't a thing, what did you Google? What did you search when you were trying to figure out how to build things? I think I, it was just like one of the first things I was trying to build and I was at Product Hunt at the time was like a Product Hunt clone. Like how do I build something that lets me do that thing because it was more than a website. It was like, you could log in, you'd have a profile and you could do stuff that would be related to like your profile. Um, so I even I started like trying to code some of those things. There was one, I can't remember what it's called now, but it was supposed to, it was supposed to be a really, really easy way to replicate what product hunt was. And I just get, kept on getting stuck every single time. So I sort of gave up on the whole coding route for myself. Um, and then I just, I think because I was at Product Hunt, I got to see a lot of these tools and their launches. So I just thought of, oh, I can sort of make a submission form. I can just do that with a form builder. And I've seen Typeform, I used Typeform before. So why don't I use that? Um, and yeah, I probably did typing how to build X without coding. I probably typed that a thousand times probably. So it was probably that. Cool. So it's kind of that idea of being in a place where you're seeing lots of innovative apps coming through. So they're kind of in your, you're aware of them, you're aware of their functionality, and then kind of, I suppose it's your innovative mindset of like how to put those together. So you mentioned that one of your first ideas was effectively to, to copy Product Hunt. Um, after that, what sort of ideas did you start having? Were they all kind of like copycat ideas to start with? Or did you start thinking about like real problems? Like when did that shift? I think it was lots of like X for Y's. So like I said, one of the other, one of the early things I built without code was a directory site for Alexa skills. So it was like, well, there's like app stores for apps. Why isn't there like a good place at the time? Why isn't there a good place to look for different Alexa skills that I want to add to my Alexa. Um, so I tried to do things that way. And I think, I mean, I was, I was always the ideas person. I thought, oh, this type of thing would be cool to build or this type of thing, or you'd see a YC company that would launch and you'd think, oh, that would be good if it was in the UK or in the European market. Um, 
and it wasn't so much like one startup goes global from day one. So I think there was room to like try some of these ideas. And I think it was just a way that I could just build a bunch of stuff. And I even I remember looking at the time at Rocket's internet, which was it would build like Airbnb was big in the US or becoming big. Rocket Internet would spin up the exact same thing for the European market and then end up selling it to Airbnb for a huge amount of money. And I was like, oh, they're cool, like ideas to do. So the actual like product and clone that I tried to do in the first place was a European version, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, the European version of product hunt is product hunt. It didn't need it didn't need its own uh, its own type. Sorry. But that's really interesting, that idea of the fact that you can take an idea from another market or another industry or another country and, and you can build it and you can still make it a success. And, and while Product Hunt wasn't necessarily an example of a company you could do that with, there's plenty of other opportunities out there for, for makers and, and developers and everybody to, to take ideas from other industries. I mean, have you, have you taken any inspiration from anywhere else for any of your other ideas? I mean, Makepad is just a copy of something else for a different market. I think when you start building ideas and you build more than one and you build more than 20, you build more than 50, you realize that there's patterns of, okay, am I building a marketplace style site? If you're doing that, then lots of them look the same. They work the same. Airbnb works the same as, I'm trying to think of a good example now, like hip, is it hip camp, the camping one? There's like lots of these work in a very similar way so then it always you could really simplistically break them all down to say oh that's airbnb for whatever um sorry my camera's just gone funny um so it's it's just a case of recognizing those patterns and and feeling okay about the fact that you're doing x for y i think at one point there was like a bit of negativity on people doing x or y comparisons but it's the easiest way to explain something it's the easiest easiest way to sort of understand it from your it's just like a good way to frame things so people people get it um and it certainly helped me and like i said makerpad was i didn't invent a membership site i didn't invent tutorial websites or anything like that i just took pieces from other startups or companies i've seen and thought i can piece them together in this one thing that like this other person's doing so cool so i think now you've mentioned makerpad of course i know a lot about makerpad but i'm conscious that people that might have tuned in today might not know as much um so do you want to give the audience a little bit of an overview about you know what makerpad is and how you came up with it and and really, and also what you built it on. I'm quite interested to understand a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, so Makerpad originally, I mean, yeah, it's more or less the same stack now. It's built with Webflow as the website. I think originally I had it so that it was a Typeform to sign up. So you could do a, you could do a Stripe payment through Typeform. So I would just charge through that. And then I'd automatically send an email to a new sign up to say, like you've got access. Um, so I think yeah, with Zapier, send the email that said you've got access. The password is bananas, and this is the the page that is like the private page. So it's just a private page on Webflow, and I just gave people a password, which actually was bananas to go and look at 
any of the like content I put up. So that was the start in January 2019. And yeah, I mean, it's a educational platform, really. It's a tutorial site. um, And we've just done a a ton of content since then. And things have escalated and grown bigger. We have Airtable for our database. We now use MemberStack for all of our membership pieces. So that isn't now a type form with a password. It's actually baked into like Webflow and it's there's like logic that hides pages and, and pieces from certain people. And what else? We use Circle for our forum software. So where people can chat, ask questions, get help. Um, but it's, it's I'm, I often go into like, we've got to build this thing and then I'll like over-engineer it. And I think this is the same with no code in general. That lots of people think, I have to like build this thing from scratch with a bunch of different tools where there could easily be like one tool out there that just does the job. So I'm, I'm guilty of that all the time. Mm. My brain automatically thinks what five, six tools can I put together to build this feature when there's probably something that does it already or does it well enough. Like our job board was one example that I did. Um, I built it ourselves and it was just, it was nice to have. It just wasn't necessary. So we just could have just used off-the-shelf software, which we, we have in the end. Awesome. And I suppose that sort of brings me on to my next question about how much right now are you spending sort of your, ta- your time actually building? Or how much? Because when you scale a business and you're a founder of business, of course, you started as the builder. But of course, as you've scaled this company or the community do you do much building now or do you have other people that do building? How does that work? Yeah, I'm still the only person who builds anything on the site. We had some people come in to like help refactor stuff or reorganize some things over over the last couple of years, but it's mostly me building new things. Like I, I built uh, on Friday, I built the new sort of dashboard system so that when people log in, they can add stuff to their own dashboard. They can like tick off tutorials, add tools and things like that. So I'm still very much in there. And I don't know whether it's because I've, it's built on top of the version I first built in January, 2019. So it's a bit like explaining that to someone. It's probably a bit daunting and a bit scary for someone to take on. So I'm the one who knows it in in and out. But it is simple when you understand like my horrible naming conventions of div blocks and all that stuff, but it's not too complex. Um, What I realized whilst running MakerPad is I am a maker. I'm not much of a manager. Like I can do some parts of it, but it's, that's not what I'm, I sort of gravitate towards. So I've tried to make sure that whatever I'm doing, there is like maker time for myself. So I need that outlet to be able Mm. to do stuff, create stuff, and whether that was content or building products, things that I sort of needed to have that balance. Um, so I quite, I still just, I like doing that. I like working in the business and not necessarily on the business as much. Great. And the thing is, I have just have so many questions, Ben. And I think one of the ones that I really want to pull out is more around how you've built the community around MakerPad because you say that you are a builder of products, but a lot of people would say that you are actually a builder of community. And, you know, how do you feel about people branding you as, you know, 
a great community builder? Um, I, I don't. I don't really know because I think I got unfairly given some clout from my time at Product Hunt, where there was already a, a good community, and I was there over the time that it became like a really big, great community. I, I don't know how much credit I should give myself for any of that piece. Um, but I was certainly one of the vocal people in the community and just like spoke to everyone and knew people and they knew me and we just sort of connected on a bunch of things. And I think that's a lot of what community is, is just connecting around a shared goal or a shared interest. So when it was MakerPad and I was just building stuff on Twitter and sharing things originally, like this is how I built an Airbnb clone. People were naturally like gravitating towards that type of content because I was the only, only one really showing that sort of stuff. So it was easy in those days to just have, I say in those days, it was only like two years ago, but it was easy then to like build a community without really thinking about building a community. And I think a lot of people nowadays are always thinking, how do I build a really good community? And I don't know that I had to think about it all that much whenever I've done it. And that might be mm. a good thing because it's it's just like a natural extension of the interest that people had around what I was doing. So it's easier then when people come around. But I think there are things that people need to do. You need to figure out like what's the right format for your community. Do you want it to be you just come here to ask for help or is it a place where you want people to hang out eight hours a day is it a peer-to-peer -peer thing is it like one person and an audience type thing which isn't really community um and things change all the time i don't know no like i don't think of myself as a community expert whatsoever but i think we've definitely helped grow the no code community as a whole and even when we were going through our acquisition of talking around like what is the make about community like yes we've got thousands on our newsletter and thousands who come to the site but it's not necessarily that we own those people in our community forum and they're speaking every day about stuff but i think that's 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 actually good there's people all over twitter that talk about no code all day every day and they should speak about it where it's best heard so i think as long as we as a brand are front and center in the no code conversations, um, podcasts, blog, all of that stuff, I think that is part of the Make About community, the no code community. We want to be synonymous with like the no code community and people are thinking of us like that. So that's how I'm seeing it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we've, we've been lucky with the growth of the community in general, but yeah. I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. You don't see community as a Slack channel or a Facebook group of people, or, you know, you see community more as a, a kind of like across all of the channels, as well as those people that interact in your site. And you become part of the community and the community becomes part of yours and they're kind of intertwined, which I really like, actually. I've never really heard anyone talk about it like that before. Yeah, I think if you... Like when I would think every now and then, I think, oh, the I wish the engagement was more on the forum or like I wish because we, we had Slack originally and then we changed to Circle as a forum. because I thought there's, there's better to have like threads of information and longer form content. And I mean, Slack is Slack feels busy, 
but it feels busy. It's not necessarily a very valuable community that you're part of. Some are, but some just sit there on your desktop for months, years, however long. And I just think it's like, if you think of companies like Figma or Webflow, their community isn't a Slack channel that they own or a, like a forum that they own. They have, actually, both of them have Slack communities, I believe, that are run by the community themselves that set them up. And they both have, or well, Webflow certainly has a forum where you ask questions about solving things with Webflow. But the Webflow community is anyone who uses Webflow or anyone who's talked about Webflow and they talk about it on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, like everywhere. And I don't know if it's something that Webflow like did on purpose or if it's just if you build an awesome product and people talking about you globally in meetups and everywhere else, like that is your community. And just how do you continue to keep feeding those flywheels and feeding those people where they are, I think is a combination of things. Yeah. Is that maintenance of that virality? Like how do you create something that's going to go viral and then it's going to continue to become viral? And then somebody's going to tell somebody who's then going to talk positively about it. And yeah, how do you do that? And I, I think you guys have done, you know, really well at that. As you mentioned, you were in the right time at the right place with a great product. You know, all of those things seem together seem to be the main component. And a lot of people have expressed interest with regards to pricing. Now, this is sort of a really big topic in the in the maker space. It's when should you start charging people for the value that you provide? And I mean, specifically for you, a maker pad, you know, was there a point in time that you're like, I'm going to have to charge for this? Um, or did you kind of think about that in advance? How did that work? I've had like almost zero thought process into pricing and I'm, not one that knows a lot about it, but what I did worked for us, which before I even launched Makepad, I, I did the same sort of thing with a company called Nuco. It was basically tutorials. It was the same. It was exactly the same thing, just like five months before. And before I launched that, I had an email list of 1,500 people from like writing a blog post or something. And I messaged them, said this is what I'm going to launch. I'm going to launch a tutorial site where I will run through things I've built without code and you'll be able to access them for, I don't know, I think, I think the first bit was like $50, $49 for lifetime access at the very start. And it was just a type form link, as always. E emailed those people and I had like 15 payments or something straight away without having a website or anything. So I, I charged before... I had anything there because so I just thought, well, there's nothing that's going to make me want to do this or make me actually do this more than people who've paid me mm. something. So those payments allowed me to think, right, okay, something here, let me do it. And I've never not charged for membership for MakerPad, um, but the numbers have literally always been made up. Like there's no science that's gone into why I've done one price versus another. It's all just been, let's just test this price. And I think one one of them was like, you just increase your pricing until people stop paying. And I know that like on some SaaS products, I'm sure that's like a great thing. But for us, it's it's just a strange, strange thing to charge on because it's an educational community. So monthly never appeal to me and it actually doesn't really appeal to our customers 
there's always a small amount of people who would like it to be monthly. But if you don't learn something in that one month because life gets in the way or you're busy or whatever it is, you're then not having that value. So every month that you don't learn something, it's like you've got to convince someone to, to stay again and, and pay the next month. Whereas like Netflix, I know that I've watched something on Netflix every month for God knows how long since I've had it probably. So they're like no brainer um, decisions, but with an educational company, it's different. And I think with the big, big companies like Coursera or Skillshare, I think they have huge numbers of people paying very small amounts of money. I didn't think that we needed to get to a million users to have $19 a year or whatever, whatever those prices are. So for me, it was like, well, why don't we do a lifetime membership model? It was just, it seemed easier. People didn't have to worry about another subscription and it's been our most popular tier we've, we've launched. Um, and that price has increased over time because it's like an ever growing resource of more and more content. Every time we do something, it just adds to that, to that membership. So it was all just like guesswork and trial and error really. And do you know how many members you have off the top of your head? There's like 9,800 members today. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. We, we look forward to getting the 10,000 announcement very soon. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully we can bring you some more members from this. Um, so yeah, if you're listening, like, go and sign up for Makepad, check out the lifetime deal. Yeah, 200 people listening. Need. <laughs> exactly. So, um, the next thing that I'm really interested about, and I think all of our listeners will agree, is this recent acquisition or merger or acquisition that you've gone through with Zapier. I mean, it was going to come up today. Um, my first question is, how did they find you or did you reach out to them? Like, who was it? How did that happen? Well, I knew Wade. I'd had dinner with him and a few other people when we were at the No Code Conf in San Francisco uh, in 2019. <laughs> Zapier were one of the early partners that were on Makerpad. So we'd sort of done some work with them and we just knew each other from a distance for a while. And then I did a tweet about like the top, the top most popular tools on Makerpad, I think in like August last year, 2020. And someone re replied to that something and said, Airtable or Zapier should buy Makerpad ASAP and like tag them. And then Wade, the CEO of Zapier, emailed that to me and said, did you see this? He's not wrong. Let's have a chat. So that's how it actually happened. So I owe, I owe a lot to Twitter. That's amazing. So it was almost like you had this kind of lukewarm lead or relationship or something where you knew each other in passing before. He obviously didn't dislike you, which is always yeah. a good thing. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, just the awareness and, and I suppose your community doing the work for you um, in a way. Yeah, I think that's probably like a really that information. Yeah, sorry. There's, a, there's probably like a really under like underrated way of like trying to get acquired. And it wasn't that we were trying to get acquired, but I think looking back on it, if you partner with tools that you're helping get customers or helping get business or helping their existing customers, whatever it is, and you find ways to consistently do that. If you're building like a community, like we built, 
if there's like a really strong correlation of the audience and everything else, I think it's like it's almost an obvious one that big companies you partner with over time, if you show them the value you add, like they'll notice and want to explore those options, I think. And it's often often like the partnership turns into an acquisition and those things happen. I think there's been a few recently of like, um, what was it? HubSpot acquiring the hustle, like things like that. I'm sure there's just Mm. like, this probably a similar story of the correlation of the community, the audience, the overlap and, things like that so yeah and are you seeing any more other companies buying up very community focused businesses because i mean we know that communities are really quite hard work to build um it seems to be that there's no real science to building them it's just you know grit and determination and continuing on the same path enough for people to notice you so maybe that was their move is to kind of acquire these community-based companies are you seeing that anywhere else I haven't really seen, I'm seeing like a few like uh, Stripe acquiring indie hackers. Uh, was it two years ago, three years ago or something? That was definitely an example of the same type of thing as as like our community being acquired by Zapier, I think. And yeah, like I mentioned, HubSpot and The Hustle, um, Insider and Morning Brew. There's just, there's a few of these that, yeah, there's, there's no small feat to like, build up a leading community in your space, have an engaged community and have a vocal community that like, and has a powerful brand and all of that stuff. Um, I think we will see more of it, but I wonder, yeah, I wonder what like the bigger trends that come out of that are, whether it's people are creating communities because they want to get hired and they think they want to get acquired. Um, I don't know if that will work, but we'll see. Awesome. And in terms of your independence or dependence on Zapier and things like that, have you got very strict agreements in terms of, you know, how much control you will maintain or, you know, how together or separate you are from Zapier? Like, was that involved in the contract? Yeah, we talked about like some level of that. There's nothing really strict put into writing anywhere, but it was Makepad is going to remain independent. We're a company within Zapier. We have our team. We do our stuff. I laid out what the vision was and what we're trying to achieve and Wade and Zapier said, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do that. So it's just been like a supportive, let's do this. I think we'll lean on them for things like inside the business things, like figuring out contracts and all of that sort of stuff, which has been things I've pieced together over the years. And then things, just simple things of, like what Zapier has learned about their SEO growth or content, like how they manage a lot of content going out all the time and things like that, that we can learn from that they've done, but it doesn't really change any of our strategy for what we're trying to build, which is what we want. And that's what they want. And I think, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a really good relationship and we're really excited for it. Amazing. And I've got to ask, I mean, how did you work out the pricing for that? Was that another kind of fly off, you know, the wall? Or did you get someone in to help you with the pricing? Or how did you figure the deal out? Well, I mean, it's it was definitely certainly my first time doing anything like that. And it was Zapier's first time doing anything like that. So it was just a case of like they come forward with an offer and we go back with what we think is fair and you just figure it out that way. It's nothing there was nothing really to write home about in terms of how that came around. I think they 
put a price on like the value they saw MakerPad was, um, and we went from there. Awesome. Well, I don't think it's not something you've revealed, is it? Unfortunately, I cannot. Oh, I was going to ask you to reveal it here today, but I, I mean, I did think I'd be pushing my luck sure, asking you to tell me the deal. I'm sure you won't be the last person to ask. Um, and you're not the first. But no. it, yeah, it's just, it's one of those, and I know people oh, get annoyed of like, why can't people say it? It's not, it's not necessarily that like, me personally, I don't want to say a number. It's just like, this is what happens in deals. It's part of the legal process. Mm -mm. It changes like how other companies are acquired. It changes like, there's all sorts of knock-on effects that people don't think of other than just like, I just want to know how much. Like, And I get that because I would be the same. But yeah. it's just, when you go through one, I think you just think, okay, well, I've signed something that says I can't say. So that's how it is. And that's unfortunately how this is. Oh, and that's fine. We're totally cool yeah, with yeah, that. It doesn't exactly. mean we're not going to keep you know, no, no, asking. Exactly, you know, yeah. One day you might slip up and accidentally say, yeah, well, and, you know, then we all yeah. know. <laughs> But anyway, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to end the podcast session um, here. So um, I'm going to say thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Natalie on the Launch No Code podcast. Subscribe to stay updated. Share us with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a review. See you next time. And until then you can always contact me on Twitter. To watch the extended versions of Launch No Code podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Launch No Code.